Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. During our last episode, we discussed Olympe de Gouges and her Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen. We learned how de Gouges was accused of treason and beheaded, and her work never really took off in France or elsewhere, as evidenced by the fact that if you say the name Olympe de Gouges, most people will not have heard of her. However, there was a woman in England writing at the very same time on the very same subject. This was the famous Mary Wollstonecraft, and her book, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, with Strictures on Political and Moral Subjects, is one of the most famous and influential works on this subject in history. Before we start, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Megan Cahoon Alder. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. So I want to start with a couple of background topics as we launch our discussion. If you look up A Vindication of the Rights of Woman just on Wikipedia, the first sentence describes Mary Wollstonecraft as an 18th century British proto-feminist. The second sentence describes her book as one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy. Okay, so by now, listeners know that word definitions are really important to me. And so we're going to pause here really quickly and talk about the word feminist. So first of all, using the terms feminism or feminist can be controversial among historians when applied to people before the term was used. So the Oxford English Dictionary lists 1852 as the year of the first appearance of the word feminist and 1895 for the word feminism. Quote, feminism, the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes, end quote. And if you look up um, Oxford reference, there's an expansion of the definition, a portion of which reads, quote, the approach to social life, philosophy, and ethics that commits itself to correcting biases leading to the subordination of women, end quote. So those are the definitions that we will be working with when that word comes up anywhere on this episode or any other episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy. Um, and I think it's interesting for today's discussion that Wollstonecraft is described in retrospect as a proto-feminist. Proto, of course, meaning the earliest or a precursor to a feminist. And we'll see why she's described this way as we discuss her work. Um, okay, and one last thing before we dive into the book. Let's talk about who Mary Wollstonecraft was and what led her to produce the work that made her famous. So we're going to take turns talking about her. And Megan, do you want to take the first part? Yeah, sure. Mary Wollstonecraft was born in London on April 27th, 1759, the second of seven children. Her father was a violent alcoholic who mismanaged the family fortune and would sometimes beat his wife in drunken rages. As a teenager, Mary used to lie outside the door of her mother's bedroom to protect her. She played a similar maternal role for her sisters, Everina and Eliza, throughout her life. Mary's education was somewhat haphazard, which was not entirely unusual for someone of her sex and position. Mary read a lot, and her mind was shaped by relationships with families who mentored her and by her friendship with Fanny or Francis Blood. The two were best friends, and after Mary's mother died in 1780, when Mary was just 21, Mary moved in with the Bloods. And in the winter of 1783, Mary ended up and left the Bloods in order to attend to her sister, Eliza, who had just given birth to a daughter. 
When she arrived, she found her sister in a terrible state of depression. Scholars now wonder, actually, if it was postpartum depression. And uh, Mary's solution for Eliza was to leave her family. So Mary and Eliza left Eliza's husband and baby and went into hiding for a time. The baby died the following August, and Eliza, who was unable to remarry, lived the rest of her life in poverty. So sad. This was a terrible time for Mary. Prior to Mary's visit to Eliza, Mary and her other sisters and Fanny Blood had set up a school together. But Fanny soon became engaged and moved to Lisbon, Portugal with her husband in hopes that it would improve her health, which had always been pretty poor. Despite the change of surroundings, Blood's health further deteriorated when she became pregnant. And in 1785, Mary left the school and went to Portugal to help Fanny after the birth of her baby. Tragically, Mary's abandonment of the school led to its failure, and even more tragically, after, the, after giving birth, both Fanny and her baby died. Fanny's death devastated Mary, of course, and was part of the inspiration of her first novel, Mary, a fiction, that she wrote in 1788. After Fanny's death, Mary got a job as a governess, frustrated by the limited career options open to respectable yet poor women, which is a topic she would write about a lot in her life. She decided to quit her job as a governess and embark upon a career as an author. This was a radical choice since at the time, few women could support themselves by writing. And let's be honest, it's still a pretty risky choice. As she wrote her to her sister Everina in 1787, she was trying to become the first of a new genus She moved to London and, assisted by the liberal publisher Joseph Johnson, found a place to live and to work to support herself. She learned French and German and translated texts. She also wrote reviews for Joseph Johnson's periodical, The Analytical Review. Wollstonecraft's intellectual universe expanded during this time, not only from the reading that she did for her reviews, but also from the company she kept. She attended Johnson's famous dinners and met such luminaries as the radical pamphleteer Thomas Paine and the philosopher William Godwin. Godwin and Wollstonecraft did not like each other at first. They met at a dinner party, and Godwin said, Wollstonecraft followed him around all night, disagreeing with everything he said, which I just think is funny. (laughs) But keep Godwin in mind because he does come back into the story later on. Uh, In 1787, Mary started to write her own work in the form of essays and books, one of which was called Form the Mind to Truth and Goodness, and was illustrated by the famous artist and poet William Blake. The French Revolution was underway at this time, and the English were watching it with careful attention. In 1790, a conservative member of the English Parliament named Edmund Burke had written a critique of the French Revolution called Reflections on the Revolution in France, and it so angered Mary that she spent a month writing a rebuttal called A Vindication of the Rights of Men in a letter to the Right Honorable Edmund Burke, which supported the values of the revolutionaries. It was originally published anonymously, but a second edition later revealed her as the author, and she became famous overnight. Now, Wollstonecraft called the French Revolution a, quote, glorious chance to obtain more virtue and happiness than hitherto blessed our globe, unquote. And the events of October 5th and 6th, 1789, when the royal family was marched from Versailles to Paris by a group of angry housewives, Burke praised Queen Marie Antoinette as a symbol of the refined elegance of the old regime, 
And he called the women who captured her, quote, furies from hell in the abused shape of the vilest of women, end quote. Wollstonecraft, by contrast, wrote of the same event, quote, probably you, Burke, mean women who gained a livelihood by selling vegetables or fish, who never had any advantages of education, end quote. It was around this time that Olympe de Gouges published her Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen in 1791. Mary began a work of her own in agreement with de Gouges' declaration and also in disagreement with an address to the French National, National Assembly, which had just been given, which stated that women's education should consist only of domestic training. Wollstonecraft wrote The Rights of Woman to launch a broad attack against sexual double standards. She published A Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792, and it was relatively well-received at the time. On December 26, 1792, Wollstonecraft saw the former king, Louis XVI, being taken to be tried before the National Assembly, and much to her own surprise, she found, quote, the tears flowing insensibly from my eyes when I saw Louis sitting with more dignity than I expected from his character in a hackney coach going to meet his death, end quote. So incredible that she was there for that historical event. No kidding. France declared war on Britain in February 1793, and Mary was stranded in France. Despite her sympathy for the revolution, life became very uncomfortable, and as an English citizen, she was in frequent danger. Some of Wollstonecraft's French friends lost their heads to the guillotine. Around this time, Wollstonecraft met and fell passionately in love with Gilbert Imlay, who was an American adventurer um, having an adventure in France at the time. She put her own principles in practice by sleeping with Imlay, even though they were not married, which was unacceptable behavior from a respectable British woman, but was in keeping with her beliefs on sexual freedom. Wollstonecraft soon became pregnant by Imlay. And on May 14, 1794, she gave birth to her first child, Fanny, named after her friend who had died. Wollstonecraft was overjoyed, and she wrote to a friend, quote, My little girl begins to suck so manfully that her father reckons saucily on her writing the second part of The Rights of Woman, end quote. She continued to write avidly despite the burdens of being a new mother in a foreign country and the growing tumult of the French Revolution. However, Imlay, unhappy with the domestic-minded and maternal Wollstonecraft, eventually left her. He promised that he would return to her and Fanny, but his delays in writing to her and his long absences convinced Wollstonecraft that he had found another woman. Her letters to him are anguished and depressed. She was a foreign woman alone with an infant in the middle of a revolution, and she had seen good friends imprisoned or executed. In May 1795, she attempted to commit suicide twice. But she survived, and she finally accepted that Imlay wasn't coming back. She returned to England and gradually went back to her literary life, becoming involved with Joseph Johnson's circle again, in particular with William Godwin. Remember him from the dinner party where they didn't like each other. Um, Godwin and Wollstonecraft's unique courtship began slowly, but it eventually became a passionate love affair. Once Wollstonecraft became pregnant, they decided to marry so that their child would be legitimate. 
But their marriage revealed the fact that Wollstonecraft had never been married to Imlay. And as a result, she and Godwin lost many friends. Hmm. Um, But after their marriage in 1797, Godwin and Wollstonecraft lived together. And Godwin rented an apartment 20 doors away as a study so that they could both still retain their independence. And they often communicated by letter. By all accounts, theirs was a happy and stable relationship. Sadly, on August 30th, 1797, Wollstonecraft gave birth to her second daughter, Mary, who would actually grow up to marry the romantic poet Percy Shelley and become a famous writer in her own right as the author of the novel Frankenstein. But although the labor and delivery seemed to go well initially, the placenta broke apart during the birth and became infected. Childbed fever, as it was called, was a common and often fatal occurrence in the 18th century. And after several days of agony, Wollstonecraft died of septicemia on September 10th, 1797. Godwin was devastated. He wrote to his friend Thomas Holcroft, quote, I firmly believe there does not exist her equal in the world. I know from experience we were formed to make each other happy. I have not the least expectation that I can now ever know happiness again, end quote. Wollstonecraft was buried at Old St. Pancras Churchyard, where her her tombstone reads, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, born April 27, 1759, died September 10, 1797. So usually we stop the biography at the author's death, but there are some important other details regarding the way Wollstonecraft's work was remembered. So Megan, could you talk about those? Yeah, sure. A year after Mary's death, her husband William Godwin published memoirs of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Although Godwin felt that he was portraying his wife with love, compassion, and sincerity, many readers were shocked that he would reveal Wollstonecraft's illegitimate children, her love affairs, and her suicide attempts. Her reputation lay in tatters for nearly a century, and when her name was mentioned, it was only in scandalized gossip about her personal life rather than her work. And here we do have to point out that this was never the case regarding male writers. Many male writers had illegitimate children and affairs and depression, and no one even batted an eye. The double standard that is still alive and well today was even more severe in the 18th century. There were some writers who managed to read and take seriously Wollstonecraft's book or, and her work, so they were able to keep it alive somewhat. Jane Austen never mentioned Wollstonecraft by name, but several of her novels contain positive allusions to Wollstonecraft's work. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who read The Rights of Woman at age 12, composed her poem, Aurora Lee, as a reflection of Wollstonecraft's unwavering focus on education. Lucretia Maud and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Americans who met in 1840 at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, discovered they had both read Wollstonecraft. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a couple of episodes. And actually, our next episode will highlight Sarah Grimke, who also read Wollstonecraft because she borrowed it from off of Lucretia Mott's coffee table. Isn't that awesome? I actually really love hearing about how these women found each other through her work, that there's, you know, this, this tie that they all have together. I love that Browning read it at age 12, right? It just, I love this. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. 
by 1929, Wollstonecraft's shame was being beginning to fade somewhat. Virginia Woolf described her writing arguments and experiments in living as immortal. Woolf said Wollstonecraft is, quote, alive and active. She argues and experiments. We hear her voice and trace her influence even now among the living. Finally, in the 1960s and 70s, the world was ready to take her work seriously, and she was included in the canon of important women writers. I love that. I think that's so interesting and important to know that she did really fall out of favor for reasons, mm-hmm. like you pointed out, Megan, that were completely hypocritical, that never would have impacted what people thought of as the quality of a man's work, right? To have right. those scandals, that was just kind right. of par for the course for a man. Um, but people were so hard on her as a woman for having those scandalous parts of her life that her work was almost lost, like forever. Um, but then, as you said, just those little kind of passing the torch, these women of keeping it alive so that then um, so that then we could know about it now and read it and discuss it today. So um, so finally, we'll move on to the text. We could spend hours talking about Wollstonecraft's insights, but we only have time for a few key points. So we divided it up into main themes and we'll just take turns highlighting a few that we thought were the most important. So I'll start, and I wanted to just begin by introducing um, a really important figure that kind of formed the background for this work. This is the genius philosopher and real piece of work, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's uh, probably the most famous for the idea of the social contract, right? That's when how you learn about Rousseau in school or whatever. And um, he was a, a mightily influential public figure. And Wollstonecraft battles Rousseau all throughout A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. So I want to start by talking about some of his ideas that she's um, contending against. So one thing I remember from reading Rousseau's discourse on inequality was um, that he kind of fancied himself as an anthropologist. He would observe human behavior and then imagine a prehistoric story to explain the behavior. So kind of like the opposite of the scientific method, <laughs> like right. take, taking an assumption and then just finding a reason why that assumption is, <laughs> is true. Um So he would say things like, you know, oh, in a state of nature, our earliest ancestors must have done this or that. And he didn't have any proof because that kind of thing wasn't known back then. But sometimes he was right and and sometimes he was wrong. But he would just make these conjectures with a really authoritative tone. And it makes him sound like he knows what he's talking about. And Mm -hmm. he does the same thing with women. He makes observations about women. And then from those observations, he extrapolates these reasons for them. And he makes bold claims about the quote unquote nature of women and thus what their role should be in relation to men. Um. So I just want to share some really choice quotes that Wollstonecraft grappled with in the uh, Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And these quotes, again, are um, Wollstonecraft quoting Rousseau, and then she responds to him. Here's the first one. Quote, It being demonstrated that men and women are not, nor ought to be, constituted alike in temperament and character, it follows, of course, that they should not be educated in the same manner. They should not be engaged in the same employments, end quote. 
and we'll just let that one stand on its own. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Megan, can you read the next one? Yes, I'd be happy to. The education of the women should be always relative to the men, to please, to be useful to us, to make us love and esteem them, to educate us when young, and to take care of us when grown up, to advise, to console us, to render our lives easy and agreeable. These are the duties of women at all times and when they should be taught in their infancy. Lovely. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a real gem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what a peach, that guy. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, we can laugh about, I mean, these make us laugh, but it's like really infuriating and it would be so hard if this was like a public intellectual spouting these things off from his platform, right? And really influencing the culture. Um, yeah. This the that quote in particular, the one you read, is really important because while Wollstonecraft does really vigorously disagree with Rousseau that women exist, you know that quote to please men, to take care of them, to be useful to men, and make their lives easy and agreeable. She really disagrees with that. She does appeal to part of Rousseau's reasoning, um, where he says, "quote to educate us when young." Right. She she asks for better, better educational opportunities for women because that will make them better mothers. She Mm -hmm. says, quote, if children are to be educated to understand the true principle of patriotism, their mother must be a patriot and the love of mankind from which an orderly train of virtues spring can only be produced by considering the moral and civil interest of mankind. But the education and situation of woman at present shuts her out from such investigations, Mm. end quote. So she's arguing that women were shut out from a high quality education, which they were, and which they needed in order to be better mothers. And this idea was a very popular one in the United States as well. And it's known as Republican motherhood. Um, After the American Revolution, citizens of the United States were very interested in creating a virtuous, well-educated democratic republic. And so to that end, they thought, well, to raise smart, virtuous boys, we need smart, virtuous mothers teaching them. And so women were allowed to be educated in the service of the republic. And that was the reason given to kind of justify Mm -hmm. investing in women's education. So... I mean, I don't have a problem with part of this, but I would want to change a couple things. First of all, I feel like if we apply it to mothers, then we also need to apply it to fathers, Mm -hmm. observing that well-educated mothers and fathers produce well-educated children. And that does benefit society as a whole. I do believe that's true. Mm -hmm. It's just that the implication of that statement is that a woman on her own isn't worth educating. Right. It's only if she's benefiting children that a woman is worth education or is worth educating. And actually, and in Wollstonecraft's time, like it was specifically to educate sons, right? Because it was <laughs> right. the sons that were going to grow up yeah. and create a strong republic. So what yeah. do you think, Megan? Oh, a thousand times yes. <laughs> of course, your education yep. is going to benefit the people around you. And that is a beautiful byproduct, but does not have to be the sole purpose of being educated. Ex- yes, exactly. Um, yeah, a beautiful byproduct, but not the sole purpose. I love that. That's, um, and Wollstonecraft did agree with that too, right? 
Yeah. She used that that Republican motherhood justification. Um, she used that in one part of the book, but she did also say, quote, the end, the grand end of women's exertions should be to unfold their own faculties and acquire the dignity of conscious virtue, end quote. So, right. and so she really, sorry. No, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it just really how radical it is, is what she's saying. You know, like if you even yeah. just have to fight and you have to come up with like the Republican motherhood justification and then yeah. for her to go on, because that might have been the thing in her heart, right? The end, the grand end is to mm. unfold their own faculties. You know, maybe she's really having to bite her tongue, sit on her hands to mm -hmm. not say those things because it was probably so radical. That's true. Definitely. And especially in context of what the, you know, the thinkers and kind of the the definers of what culture should be, what they were all saying at the time. Okay, so the next gem from Rousseau is, quote, a man speaks of what he knows, a woman of what pleases her. The one requires knowledge, the other taste. The principal object of a man's discourse should be what is useful that of a woman's, what is agreeable. We ought not, therefore, to restrain the prattle of girls in the same manner as we should that of boys, with that severe question, to what purpose are you talking? But by another, which is no less difficult to answer, how will your discourse be received? They ought to observe it as a law, never to say anything disagreeable to those whom they are speaking to. Um, I can hear you. <laughs> And you're, and you're, taking you're, you're like, breaths. you're taking deep breaths. Totally. I can like hear the smoke coming out of your ears. <laughs> I am so oh angry goodness. too. Yeah. I'm so angry Just reading this. So gross. Yeah. Okay. Let's read some more okay, since this is do. so fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important though. Am I taking this next one? Yes, please. Okay. Will you read that? That'd yeah. be great. As the conduct of a woman is subservient to the public opinion, her faith in matters of religion should, for that very reason, be subject to authority. Every daughter ought to be of the same religion as her mother, and every wife to be of the same religion as her husband. For though such religions should be false, that docility, which induces the mother and daughter to submit to the order of nature, takes away in the sight of God the criminality of their error." As they are not in the capacity to judge for themselves, they ought to abide by the decision of their fathers and husbands as confidently as by that of the church. Wow. Yep. There it is. There it is. Okay. And then in that same atrocious vein as that last quote um, is a thought from another influential thinker. So those were all of the Rousseau quotes we have, but I'm going to do one um, from another man that Wollstonecraft quoted a lot, and his name is Dr. Gregory. Dr. Gregory had written um, a book called Dr. Gregory's Legacy to His Daughters, which was a book of advice to his daughters. And so Wollstonecraft, uh, Wollstonecraft quotes him uh, by saying, quote, be even cautious in displaying your good sense. It will be thought you assume a superiority over the rest of the company. But if you happen to have any learning, keep it a profound secret, especially from the men who generally look with a jealous and malignant eye on a woman of great parts and a cultivated understanding, end quote. 
So there we have it. That gives us kind of an idea of the prevalent beliefs about women from some of the most influential thinkers at the time. And this is what Wollstonecraft was contending with when she wrote her book. Yeah. And, you know, with all of that as the backdrop, it it makes a lot of sense that one of the strongest arguments she makes throughout the whole book is about elevating women's ability to think rationally. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's fighting against the argument that um, there really should be gendered ways of becoming virtuous. You know, the argument being women should attend to womanly virtues and men just, you know, regular virtues or the default virtues. But she argues that in reality, the path towards virtue should be the same for both men and women. And in order to help women along that path, they they need to learn how to reason. And so she says, quote, women are not allowed to have sufficient strength of mind to acquire what really deserves the name of virtue. And without that strength of mind, they are not going to be able to wrangle in those parts of themselves that can lead to bad habits or vice, just like men. So reason is the attribute that's going to help keep all of that in check. She says, women as as well as men ought to have the common appetites and passions of their nature. They are only brutal when unchecked by reason. But the obligation to check them is the duty of mankind, not a sexual duty. Here she's arguing that everyone has the possibility of falling into bad habits or, you know, getting vices based on desires or passions. But it's everyone's responsibility to curb them, which in turn will produce moral and upstanding citizens. And women need to be allowed to learn how to do that. And at that time, they just weren't allowed Mm -hmm. (laughs) to even really be thinking critically at all. And so, you know, throughout the whole book, she places reason above everything else. And and there's this lens of emotions are only something that get in the way. They're only for the weak. And most of all, they belong in the realm of women. And that lens has such tendrils that you really can see its impact everywhere, even today. You know, getting back to Mary, I, I know she had to present her argument this way, right? She had to argue for women to be allowed into the realm of reason and 200 years later, we may finally be making room for men to be allowed into the realm of emotion. And I will yes. also I will also add that that allowing women into the realm of emotion and have that not be denigrated, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That is actually where we're going to wrap up today's discussion. So thank you so much, 